Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 9 of Behind the Microphone, with me, Hamish Percy. Today's guest is the BBC's voice of athletics and boxing, Mike Costello. And if you don't know the name, you might recognise the voice. Oh, once again, here's the front. Check Tegan on his outside. Memories of London 2012. Running back. The crowd. The noise. The goal. Joshua lands a right hand again. Another left hook. And Joshua is badly shaken. He goes down. Joshua is down. Seconds after... Laurie Ruiz himself, and do we have Joshua versus Pitchko all over again? In this episode, Mike details his journey through the BBC, beginning in the BBC accounts department at 16, and working his way up to become the main commentator for BBC Radio 5 Live for both boxing and athletics. Mike also discusses how his experience amateur boxing has helped with his commentary of the sport, the difficulties of commentating on the 100 metres and attempting to master it, and his aims as a commentator for both boxing and athletics. I hope you enjoy. So Mike, just to start, was a career in in sport always the plan from a young age? No, it wasn't. I mean, I I was mad on sport from a young age and and wanted to compete. I thought maybe one day I'd I'd box at the Olympic Games, but I I wasn't good enough and, and never really thought about a career in broadcasting. I joined the BBC at a very young age in an admin department working in accounts within the admin department and eventually made my way into a sports room doing voluntary work at the weekends and then got a permanent job within the sports room at the BBC World Service at the time in central London and gradually made my way up through the ranks there. A story that would be, I think, very familiar to to people like me and of my generation. Not so many people back then went to university. A lot of people, as was the case with me, didn't even go on to education at A-level as it was back then, still is now A-level and A-less level. Back then it was O-levels and then a lot of people left at 16, maybe at 18, I left at 16, was lucky enough to get a job at the BBC at that age because of the employment landscape at the time. A lot of youngsters were leaving school at 16 and so it's been a gradual progression of being helped by a lot of people around me and taking advantage of the lucky breaks that I've had along the way and I've been working in BBC Sport since 1983 and my first commentary was in 1995 again for the BBC World Service so it's been a very gradual process and for anybody listening in who's wanting to get into the business wanting to get into broadcasting generally sports broadcasting specifically and even more specifically commentary patience is the key word waiting for the opportunity but also being ready for the opportunity when that opportunity strikes and your your opportunity came i think i'm right as you just said in 1995 at the World Athletics Championships, I think it was. How, how was that and how, how did that come about? In 1995, I was working for the BBC World Service. In recent years, I covered a couple of cricket tours. The managing editor of the sports room at the time was keen that everybody working within the sports room was an all-rounder rather than specialising in certain sports because of the budgets, because of the number of staff, for all sorts of logistical reasons. It was 
better for him as their sports editor to have everybody being all-rounders rather than strong in, in, in certain disciplines or certain sports. And he'd sent me on a couple of tours to India in one case and to Pakistan in another case to, to cover those cricket tours featuring India against Pakistan and India against England in those different tours. And when I got back, he said to me, even within this landscape of, of being an all-rounder, do you want to specialise in cricket? And I said, I, I don't know enough about the sport. I know enough to go on tour and cover it in, in terms of colour, general atmosphere and the, the, the rudimentary elements of the game. But I said to him at the time, I wouldn't want somebody working in boxing with the amount of knowledge, relatively speaking, that I've got about cricket. I said to him, eventually, I'll get found out because I don't have that background knowledge. Um, and he said, is there any other sport? We don't have the money to pay for boxing rights. Is there any other sport that you'd like to get involved in? And I said, I've been passionate about athletics for a long time. And he said, well, we, we don't have the airtime for commentary on athletics, but what we do have is the scope for you to go to world championships, European championships or whatever, and report from those championships and interview the athletes and, and do everything around the, the, the championships. But when I went there, I decided that if I was going to do five or six reports a day, maybe an hour apart, there'd be a lot of time in between those reports to practice commentary. And so I'd practice commentary in the build-up to the championships at home with old VHS video cassettes. Um, and then I'd gone to the championships and, and practiced in between my reports on air. Um, and I'd asked studio engineers back in London if they would record some of these commentaries that I did. And when I finished at the championships, I asked the managing editor and some of the producers to listen back to those commentaries. And that's how the whole process started. Even though, the, even though those commentaries weren't used on air, they were invaluable to me in terms of that first step on the commentary ladder, getting people to, to give me feedback. And then we would go to championships from there on. And if, for example, during the, the sports program that I was reporting into, there was a chance to do live commentary on a race that happened to coincide with that sports bulletin, then I was able to do that commentary. And I might only do five or six commentaries from an entire championships, but it was that chance to prove myself that happened over the course of the next half a dozen years. And then the first Olympic Games that I did commentary from was Sydney in 2000, where we did a two and a half hour show every night on the BBC World Service. And that was the big breakthrough in terms of proving that not only could I do the ad hoc commentaries once in a while, once every couple of hours, that I could do the sustained pressure of two, two and a half hours on air. And that was all with the BBC World Service. And there were great constraints within the BBC World Service because of rights issues, broadcasting rights issues, because of the name of the network, BBC World Service. There were lots of countries around the world that didn't want the BBC World Service commentating on big events that were going into their country, whether it was, for example, Australia or New Zealand, were also commentating in the English language to their own listeners. And they felt that the BBC World Service might be an unwanted competitor. So it was very difficult in terms of getting rights access, broadcasting rights access to big commentary events. I was doing no boxing commentary at the time and very little in the way of athletics. And, and it got frustrating. I really wanted to kick on, but there was just no pathway because 
at the time, John Rawling was the BBC Five Live commentator and was ensconced and, and looked as if he'd be there for a long time. And then came a lucky break, which goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. You've got to be ready when the opportunity strikes. And I can speak from experience here because my big break in that sense, in terms of spreading my wings, came at the Commonwealth Games in 2002 in Manchester, when John Rawling was the BBC Five Live commentator. But after three days of athletics competition, he lost his voice. And on the Monday night of competition, so there were still three nights of competition to go, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday night. On the Monday night, about half an hour before competition was about to get underway, the producer, a guy called Matthew Allen, came to me and said, John's lost his voice. Is there any chance you can come up and do commentary this evening? And as it happened, I'd done a lot of homework in the hotel room in the afternoon just for the work I was going to be doing for the BBC World Service, just wondering whether those races might fall into my BBC World Service airtime. I'd done the homework anyway, just in case I had the chance to get on air. So whereas I wasn't necessarily ready for three hours of commentary, I was at least prepared to, 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 to give it a go. And that night went okay. The following night, John's voice didn't return, and so I did the rest of the, the Commonwealth Games athletics commentary for Five Live. And they liked what I did, and that was a big step up for me. From there on, I was given opportunities to work as a ringside reporter at their big boxing nights. BBC Television got into boxing, signed some contracts to cover some boxing. I was the ringside interviewer for BBC Television. And so that process then began to give me the scope to prove what I could do to various... BBC outlets. And then in 2005, John Rawling was headhunted by ITV. They were getting into boxing in a big way through Amir Khan, who'd just come out of the Athens Olympics. Joe Kawasaki was an established world champion. They decided to get into boxing in a big way. John Rawling went to join them. There was a gap at BBC Five Live. And I took over from John Rawling at that stage. And, and that's where I've been ever since and it's it's been the most amazing experience at Olympic Games, big world title fights and all of that frustration that I felt at the BBC World Service because of rights issues, because of limited airtime, suddenly I was allowed to almost to run free without any shackles and I was allowed to, to, to commentate. We'd go to championships and we'd be on air all evening, every evening, go to big fights and we'd do three fights in one night. So everything changed very quickly over the course of of those three years from 2002 to 2005, but it took a long, long time to get there. And as I said, right at the beginning, it took it took a lot of patience. I could have moved on. There were other areas I was looking at. Did I want to become a TV producer? Did I want to become a documentary maker? I've worked in pretty much every facet of, of broadcasting, but the commentary is what I always wanted to do. But for a long time, I wondered ever whether it would ever come around. Um, and so eventually it did, and, and it's it's been the most fulfilling and the most exciting way to, to make a living. And if you look at a lot of people who do what I'm doing, whether it's people you've interviewed like John Murray, like John Rawling before me, you'll notice Martin Tyler at Sky Sports, they've been in the job for a long time. Why? Because it's just the best possible way make a living you're following in some cases your heroes around the world great crowds great noise great atmosphere historic events and you're happy you're, you're lucky enough to be ringside or trackside 
at some of the, the, the greatest sporting events that, that people pay fortunes to see and even pay to watch on television at times. So it's it's been a, a, an incredibly fulfilling life in, in, in sports broadcasting generally, but the last 15 years have been a real highlight. That That's fantastic. And going back to the start, you, you mentioned how you you wanted to be a boxer and, and box at the Olympic Games. I know that you, you did box uh, and, and coached boxing when you were younger. Do you think, and I, I feel like this might be almost a, a very straightforward question, but like, do you think that enhanced your boxing commentary skills because you have that empathy, because you know what they're going through? I don't think there's any question about that. I get this giddiness as, as the boxers walk alongside me, and it's usually to the left, the way the ringside furniture is set up, and they'll be five or six feet away when they climb the ringside steps before these big nights. And I get this kind of tingle, and I, I always wonder whether other commentators are feeling exactly the same. Yes, they'll have that same kind of nervousness, excitement, all, all of that built into to what they're about to do, however long they've been doing it. But if you have climbed those steps, even in a very, very primitive level like I did way back then, there is a different feel and there is a different empathy with what's going on up in the ring. I don't think there's any any question about that. And and it's I think it's it's particularly relevant in boxing. And I go all the way back to when I said earlier I was I was offered the experience of covering cricket tours in India and in Pakistan and then was offered a, a long-term future in, in cricket. But when I was covering cricket, I would be in media centres and press boxes with Pakistani journalists, Indian journalists, and one or two journalists from elsewhere. And I would listen to the conversations and would soak up and absorb what they were saying. But I would come away and realise that I just didn't have anything like that level of insight into cricket. These were people who'd born, been born into the sport, had grown up playing it, a lot of them to a high level, but certainly even as fans knew an awful lot more than I did. And I think that's that's where I can bring something different to boxing, that I've been in the corner coaching and I've actually been in the ring, as I say, at, at, at a much lower level and only at amateur level over three rounds. But it is an experience that most people who do what I do haven't had the benefit of doing and so I, I do have that that extra insight and it's it's not necessarily something that can be articulated but it's it's a feel it's just something that you feel while you're while you're commentating and the ringside furniture helps as well and and that and the whole if you like the layout of everything and and the the, the competition arena when i commentate on athletics I could be, if the athletes, for example, in a, a distance race or on the far side of the track, I could be 50 or 60 metres away. In boxing, I'm usually five or six feet away from the action. So you, you, you're so close to the action. And we have great positions at the BBC at Wimbledon, but you're still some distance behind the baseline. And it's, it's almost unique boxing in that sense that you get so close to the action. And that's a, that, I think that... That applies to, to every commentator, but also being that close to to somewhere that I dreamt of being one day, I think is is, is something that in, in some way just generates a, a different feel about the commentary I do in boxing to anything else I do. And on the flip side, do you perhaps find it a, a bit more difficult when you do commentate on athletics, not necessarily having that same empathy? 
what I quite often say about athletics, when I'm asked the question, which sport do you prefer commentating on? And I say that I love athletics, but I live boxing. And that's the difference. The boxing has been with me since a very young age. I literally can't remember life without boxing. I started in between the year of primary school and secondary school, and I can't remember life without boxing. In athletics, I come in from a different side of town. I come in as a fan who has been lucky enough to get a gig at the job, which is how most commentators have got there. They're football fans or they're cricket fans. Most of the best commentators are not actually former players. It does happen. Jonathan Agnew, brilliant commentator in cricket, you know, played test cricket for England. But generally speaking, that's not the case with commentators because the expertise comes from the summariser or the co-commentator. So I do sometimes uh, you know, feel almost naked going into an athletics stadium in that sense without that, that background in the sport. But the difference in athletics is that it's kind of a dozen sports within a sport. So you know, whatever event you've been brilliant in, there are a range of events that you don't have that same kind of expertise in. You know, I worked a lot with Darren Campbell, who won Olympic gold in the 4 by 100 meters relay and Olympic silver in the 200 meters. And he's fantastic on the sprints. And he's brilliant at applying that kind of expertise to other events because he's been right at the epicenter of big, big nights. But he's the first to admit that he doesn't know anything about the tactics of a 10,000 meter race or the technique of a triple jumper or a, an ace long jumper. Or, I mean, he actually did a bit of uh, long jumping when he was competing. But the point to be made is that there are so many different sports within a sport in athletics, the hurdles, the jumps, the sprints, the long distances, the throws, that it's, it's harder to be an expert across everything in athletics than it is in the single discipline of boxing or other sports. And in athletics, I've heard you say previously that the 100 metres is one of the most difficult events to commentate on in sport. Could you explain to me why why that is and, and how you attempt to master it? I think it's simply the, the amount of time that you've got to get it right. I remember the, the, the famous broadcaster, Eamon Holmes, who's on ITV a lot at the moment and, and you know, has been all over the place for, for years and years. He was presenting a programme on Five Live on Saturday mornings for a while. And at one indoor championships, he cued to me to commentate on a heat of the men's 60 metres, which was featuring at the time a British sprinter called Jason Gardner. I seem to remember it was at a, a European indoor championships. And so they went from gun to tape and it was six and a half seconds, the winning time. And I handed back to Eamon Holmes and he said to me, blimey, Mike, that must have been the easiest commentary you've ever done. Whereas those 60 metre races, or as you said, the 100 metre races, are the hardest commentary that you will ever do. Because you've only got to get into the wrong flow. You've only got to get into the wrong half a sentence and you don't have time to correct it. I remember being told by an English teacher at school that if every sentence we utter is roughly three sentences long, the average person, the sentence they utter is three seconds long. So if every sentence is three seconds long, then you've pretty much got three to get it right over the course of a, a 100 meter race. Now, of course, in commentary, you break it down into phrases, but it's, it's so important to get 
the flow of the race very early on. And I know that sounds strange given that it's only a 100 meter race and it's a mad dash from, from start to finish, or so it seems. But picking up on the, the wrong athlete or, or missing out on the right athlete is, you know, is that's a danger that every athletics commentator faces. And the only way to get through it, the only way to master it is to just practice and practice and practice and, and to, to get out and, and to experience it um, on the day. And it's a case of framing the race for me around one or two athletes because those will usually be the key components. If, for example, it's a, a semi-final of the 100 metres at the Olympic Games, it might be that everybody's wondering how Usain Bolt's going to get on or the British athlete's going to get on or the favourite for the gold medal. So I, I've always felt that it's, it's best to frame it around that particular athlete. So it might be Usain Bolt winning or losing, but then that could be the, the, the key to, to the story. But it's about practice, 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 and not concentrating for too long on a single athlete and then missing my, what might be going on elsewhere in the race. It's a very complicated process. But I think it's one of the reasons it's, it's or, or the key reason it's so difficult is that the race is over so quickly. And if you pick up the wrong thread early in the race, it's very difficult to, to correct that in the process of a, a 10 second race. Just then you mentioned it's, it's, it's important to get right the, the key to the story. Is that what you're trying to do as, as whatever sport you're commentating on? Are you trying to, to, to tell a story? Is that, is that your aim? What, what are your aims basically as a, as a commentator? The greatest commentator that, that I've heard in my lifetime was an athletics commentator called Ron Pickering. There have been many commentators that I've looked up to and, and not necessarily tried to copy because a lot of them, you know, the, the, the great, great names were around a long time before me. And so I, I don't necessarily remember what they did. But Ron Pickering worked alongside a great commentator called David Coleman. And many people describe Coleman as, as the greatest in history and their great mentor. And I completely understand that. But it was Ron Pickering, who was a former coach who he worked alongside who always seemed to tell a story, always seemed to leave me with a line that I would remember at the end of a commentary or at the end of a session, not necessarily every single commentary, but at the end of a session, at the end of an evening, there'd be something that Ron Pickering had said that really resonated with me. And I'll pick up one example, Daley Thompson, the great decathlete who won Olympic gold twice in the decathlon. The last of the 10 events in the decathlon is the 1500 meters. So at the pace that they run it, it, it lasts between four and four and a half minutes. And on this particular occasion, Daley Thompson was pretty much assured of taking the gold medal. In boxing parlance, all he had to do in the 1500 metres was stand up to win. He only had to finish the race. It didn't matter where he finished. As long as he finished, he was far enough ahead on points that he was going to take the Olympic gold medal. And Ron Pickering took this opportunity to basically tell Daley Thompson's life story in the course of this three and a half, three and three quarter laps and four and a half minutes. And it was just a, a, a brilliant opportunity as, as the runners were making their round, way round to, to give us an impression of what had gone into this last 1500 metres, this two days of competition, this great man about to be crowned Olympic champion. And he told pretty much his whole life story about how his father had been shot and all the 
the trials and tribulations of his career and how he'd got to this stage. And so by the time the runners got into the home straight, you're kind of standing on your feet and you're punching the air and you're desperate for Daley Thompson to win the race. And it was like Daley Thompson was almost part of the family. It was it, you, you were so besotted with him and so passionate for him to win the race. And I, that has stayed with me for a long time. I wasn't commentating at that time and, and didn't even think I'd ever get a job as a commentator at that time. But that stuck with me and that that whole feature of of leaving, in my case, the listener, in his case, the viewer, with a, a story to tell or, or a memory of, of, of something different about the race or the fight is, is very important. It's, it's impossible to do that all the time, but that's a kind of a notion I take with me a lot of the time so that if you're, you're listening and you don't necessarily know who it is in the ring, then in the course of maybe the ring walk or the, the preview to the fight, you know, I'll make sure that you are emotionally attached to the event by the time the first bell rings. And that's that's a, a key I take to, to ringside or to trackside every time. Try and tell a story that will get the listener emotionally involved and attached to that particular event. And I'm guessing that emotional involvement and that emotional attachment continues in the post-match interviews as well. And I've I've heard, again, you say previously that an interview with a losing boxer is sometimes the most powerful interview in sport. Why is that? And again, is that are you are you then when you're speaking to them trying to get that emotional attachment back to the listener? Yeah, I think one of the reasons is that the, the nature of boxing and the loneliness in the build-up to a fight and the the almost prisoner-like existence that they have to lead in the lead-up to a fight. And I know a, a lot of athletes would, would say that they have the same kind of experience, but then also on the, on the ring apron, when a fight is over, sometimes when the fighter has lost, it's a very dark tunnel that they're staring out into. And it's all the more painful in those early moments when they haven't had a chance to really assess what might happen from here on. When a football team, a cricket team, even an athlete lose, there is usually another opportunity coming very quickly. You know, if, a football team, and it's different, I guess, in a, in a team environment. So if we take, for example, a, a tennis player, you know, if they're beaten at the French Open in May, they've got Wimbledon coming up at the end of June, early July. Then they've got the US Open later that year. There are chances coming around very quickly to put it right. If a boxer, for, for example, in an eliminator for a world title that he's spent all of his life working towards and then he's beaten when he's one step away from getting a world title shot. And if he's not with the right promotion and he's not with the right connections, it might be a long way back for him to make his way up through the snakes and ladders of boxing to get there again. And I think that that kind of fatalistic feeling is, is, is often prevalent in a, in a boxer's mind. And I think we also have to bear in mind, and this is why you may have heard me say this before as well, that I, I don't often um, wade in with difficult questions and, and challenge boxers after a fight, unless they've been particularly aggressive or, you know, for, for some reason questioned what I'm questioning. But most of the time, it, it's not a case of treading carefully or, or, or you know, treating them in a way that you wouldn't treat other athletes. It's just that you have to understand that they've been smacked around the head. 
and that can create you know a, a different kind of atmosphere that they might not be you know talking with the clarity that they would be a week earlier or a week later you have to bear that in mind and, you know we've got this whole discussion in sport now about concussion in sport and what can be done about it and you know this this has always been at the forefront of my mind in interviewing boxers afterwards even winning boxers over a distance of time will still have taken a lot of heavy blows to the head and that can determine how they're thinking and, and, and what they're saying at that particular time it also adds to their emotion and that's why I say some of those interviews can be the most powerful that you ever do because of the, the very nature of boxing and, and how much of themselves they have to give to to get themselves anywhere near glory. Okay and just to wrap up the last question Mike if you could give any bits of advice to kind of aspiring sports broadcasters looking to emulate a career perhaps similar to yourself what 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 would you say? I would say practice, practice, practice. Get in touch with as many people within the business as you can, as you've been doing, just to, to pick up hints and tips along the way because we're all different and, and you know we have different levels of confidence, different levels of ability. But the, the key is practice, practice, practice in whatever that, that field might be. And so if, if, if you decide you want to be a pitch side interviewer in football just practice whether that's on friends or on local teams and and you know some people might say that's that's laughable i've seen another boxing commentator sat at ringside at york hall on a regular bill recording boxing commentary into a tape recorder practicing 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 and every now and again i'd see people looking along press row and say what's he shouting and screaming about as if to say, what's he doing? Well, he was practicing, 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 and he was ready for the opportunity when it came. Patience, as I said right at the beginning, is absolutely key because, as I said, if you look at people like me who've been commentating for BBC Five Live, others on Sky Sports, on BT Sport, you'll find generally they've been doing it for a long time because it's such a fascinating and fantastic world to work in therefore the opportunities don't come around every day of the week so you have to be ready when the opportunity strikes i know that might sound hollow to people who think there's a there's a traffic jam between them and getting on air on on any of the big networks but you're not going to get there by giving up that's for sure and practice 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 and i often say when i speak to for example university students that if you apply to your life and work what great sportsmen and women have done to get to the top, like a, a Floyd Mayweather or a Usain Bolt, you know, for all of their glorious skills and their natural born talent, what they do away from the ring and away from the track underpins their success, incredible dedication, determination and desire. And in the end, those three qualities are quite often what separates those who get the opportunities and those who don't because those who really want it badly enough hang around and wait for the chance to come. Well, that's fantastic advice, Mike. And just the last thing, I've got a Mike Costello quiz, which is five questions, basically testing your memory <laughs> at events you've been at. Um, so this is basically a memory test. Um, the four times... Oh, yeah. And you can, you, you can edit all the ones I get wrong, yeah? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
But yeah, the four times 100 metre relay at the London 2017 World Championships. Who pulled up injured for Jamaica as Britain won gold? That was Bolt. Okay, yeah, that was that was an easy yeah, one to start, yeah. but yeah, I'm straight, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your first boxing commentary, I think, Ricky Hatton versus Ray Oliveira. 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 Yeah. What round yeah. did Ricky Hatton knock him out? Whoa, is it ten? It is ten. That's yeah, very oh. good memory. <laughs> Two thousand eight hundred meter final. Usain Bolt won, but who came second? It was Richard Thompson. It was, three out of three. Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah. Anthony Joshua against Pulev. What round did Pulev, Pulev get knocked out? Nine. Nine it was. For, maybe they're too easy, these questions. We're going for a grand slam. This one's actually, I think, relatively easy, but how many Olympic gold medals has Sir Mo Farah won? Whoa. Right. 2012... 2016, four. Four. You're, you're the first guest to get five out of five. I've asked that to absolutely everyone. Not the same one, obviously. But yeah, the, the highest has always been three out of five. So Great, great. Yeah, congrats. Well, I, did, I, I sent you the email with those five, didn't I? So I knew I'd get them up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for Series 2, Episode 9 of Behind the Microphone with me, Hamish Percy, and BBC Radio 5 Live's boxing and athletics commentator Mike Costello. A huge thanks to Mike for talking me through his career and the art of being a boxing and athletics commentator. As always, please like, share and subscribe and I'll be back with another episode next week. Take care.